podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's a sombre Wednesday in the world of English football. Those of us who support Premier League teams, and especially Premier League teams who are regulars in the league, challenges for the title, challenges for Europe, whatever, we rarely think about the potential of our club not being there anymore. We always just assume they'll be that one constant in our life. From childhood to the very end, we just assume that our club will be there. And for fans of Macclesfield Town, today they find the news that their club has been wound up by the High Court with debts totalling over half a million pounds. Macclesfield, of course, were relegated from League Two last season, having had 17 points deducted from their total, sending them down. And that's basically what's caused this to happen with no extra income from being part of the Football League. They can't afford to meet their payroll. They can't afford to pay their creditors. They can't afford to pay the tax bill. Uh, £190,000 in tax, in back taxes owed, £173,000 owed to a former manager, £173,000 owed to a financial lender. That money was taken to pay players at one point. It's a very, very sad day for football. And after what happened with Bury last season, you do worry that this is going to become something of a trend, especially in the midst of a pandemic. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lee Scott, author of King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty. Lee's going to be joining me hopefully every Wednesday through the season uh, to give some tactical analysis on the games we've just seen and a little bit of a tactical preview on the games coming up this weekend. But Lee, let's start with, with the Macclesfield situation. It's heartbreaking to see a club go out of business hugely so i mean i think that you touched upon the fact that in this current financial climate of football and this covid reality that we're all living in at the moment i think that the pressures of football clubs at that level are absolutely enormous and i know there's been talk about test events my own club aberdeen would allow 300 fans this weekend past it there their home match against Kilmarnock, but now we've been told by the Scottish government that there will be no more test events for the foreseeable future. Um, I believe in England the, the picture is slightly different and clubs are going to be allowed to have some fans in the stadiums, but this is all reliant on whether football could continue to go in this manner and whether mm. the, the numbers of, of positive cases continue to go up and what kind of impact this will have in terms of eventually getting fans back in the stadiums. It's all very well for for Premier League teams with their their TV revenue and their sponsorship and everything else, chances are all Premier League teams will be fine throughout this period. Yes, spending will be down. Fans might not understand why, but it's completely realistic that spending will be down. But at the lower reaches of the game, that's where the the teams who are attempting to be, to stay professional at this point they're really going to struggle. They are massively, like you say. 
in the Premier League, you've got huge TV money, you've got huge advertising rev- revenue, the, the commercial side of the game is massive. And behind the clubs, you do, for the vast majority, have very, very wealthy men who will be happy enough to float the clubs for a year or two years or however long it takes to get through this. There will be some relaxed restrictions on FFP if clubs need to take some extra money from the owners just to get by. That's not the case in the lower leagues, especially when you drop... In the championship, there's a number of very wealthy people happy to fund their clubs and try and chase that Premier League dream. But when you get into League One and League Two, you're you're talking about wealthy people, but not mega rich people. You're talking about mostly passionate fans who fund the clubs through match day revenue and buying the kit. And with no match day revenue, it's it's not hard to see multiple clubs. I mean, look how close Bolton Wanderers came last season to going out of business. We've seen we see what's going on with Wigan at the moment. I mean, what owner is is going to be willing to go into Wigan at the moment and buy that club, knowing there's no match day revenue coming in for the foreseeable future, and they're going to have to continue to float the club as well as paying off the remainder of the debt? It is very concerning. Um, I I would assume that uh, Kieran McGuire and Kevin Day on the Brilliant Price of Football podcast will have something out on this this week. Um. And maybe they'll go into detail on what other clubs, but it really does just make you concerned. And, and I'm sure in Scotland as well, Lee, there's, there's going to be massive pressure on, on clubs outside of the, the top flight as well who are you know, running a shoestring and now without fans and, and without the test events setting things back. It, it leads to more uncertainty. Massively so. I think you're right to just touch upon the fact that the price of football is the, the go-to for for any events like this. The the, the input that Kieran Maguire has in terms of the financial side of football is invaluable and it's something that I, I always make sure to check out whenever there, there's a storyline like this during the rounds. But I think it's going to be extremely difficult for clubs to find their way. I mean, League 1 and League 2 have implemented a, a wage cap, a salary cap, which... Although there are some clubs who, perhaps justifiably so, have reservations about it, like Sunderland and and Portsmouth, who have larger fan bases and and can justifiably say that they have perhaps more financial strength and financial flexibility than other clubs. But in terms of making sure that everybody else is okay at that level, having a salary cap and, and being able to to restrict what clubs can spend in terms of wages just seems like a sensible move to me. I think that we're going to be in this situation for at least the next 12 months and clubs need to do whatever they can to to make sure that they can come through unscathed or relatively unscathed. I completely agree. And you mentioned Sunderland and like there's no way around it. Sunderland are a big club. Sunderland yeah. are a Premier League sized club. And when you see the financial problems they've had once they drop out of the Premier League with with you know them filling that stadium most weeks regardless it it does make you think like what happens to smaller clubs what happens yeah. to clubs that maybe get 4 and 5000 through the door 
Yeah, it, that's that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, there, there must be an answer, and I know that it's been in the news over the last couple of days that there was an application by the, the Football League to to almost keep the parachute payment that the Premier League would have been due mm. to pay Fulham had they not regained possession, and that parachute payment could have been used as a, a redistribution method, if you like, to these clubs who are in financial straits, and it could have helped, but the Premier League, which is... I guess completely down to them, decided they would prefer to keep the money to use elsewhere, perhaps to to plug holes in their own COVID-affected budget. So I think that that there has to be some way around these things. You touched upon at the start of the the podcast the the sad situation of Bury this time last year when Mm. they were wound up and they went out of existence. I know that their owner, who I'm I'm not going to name in this podcast, I don't think he deserves to be (laughs) named, Uh, I know that he has still been posted on the official Bury website that the club is still an ongoing entity, but to all all appearances, it's no longer the case. And there's a chance that we're going to see that more and more going forward. It's just there has to be an answer, and it's interesting that this last week we've seen Hector Bellerin become a shareholder in Forest Green Rovers. I mean, yeah, yes, he absolutely he he's made no secret of the fact that he is very environmentally focused in terms of his his desire to to raise awareness about climate change issues and to to promote sustainability in terms of the way that we live and general day-to-day lives and obviously that's also the ethos of Forest Green so it made sense to that point but perhaps there's an opening for other wealthy footballers to be able to give some investment to clubs if they're they're able to float them that way. I know that Bill Kenwright, the former Everton chairman, tried to invest in Bury but he was denied doing so because of his continued ties with Everton Football Club and you just think there has to be some kind of flexibility to ensure that these football clubs can remain an ongoing entity. That's exactly the thing. And I, I thought the Bellerin story was great, um, that he, he's invested in Forest Green. And I, I totally agree. I, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, we should be clear, it's, it's not the player's place to do this, but no. it is an opportunity for them. It's just, you know, when you look at, at a map, for say, and, and you look at where Macclesfield is and Bury is, they're, they're about an hour apart. And that's two fan bases now that don't have a team and that owner can post whatever he wants on his website. Me yeah. and you can start a website tomorrow and claim we have a club. That's a, you know, an active football club, but if we've no players and we don't play any games, yeah, I mean, exactly. we're doing about as much as them. <laughs> um, we'll move on. We have some transfer news. Uh, news broke yesterday. Um, that Tottenham Hotspur are very, very close to agreeing a deal with Real Madrid for Sergio Regulon the left-back who impressed everybody, I think, with, with Sevilla last season, and that also Gareth Bale might be returning to the Premier League. Uh, Spurs are looking to do a loan with potentially an obligation to buy him if they get Champions League football. Uh, what's your instant reaction to to those two moves? Like, I, I think the regular deal is a no-brainer for Spurs, even with the buyback. Yeah, absolutely. As we, that buyback clause is something that a lot of a lot of bigger clubs are now putting in place in these deals just to protect themselves. I think that clubs are fully aware that they've been burned over the years when they, they've let players go, and that player has then developed and taken the next step in their career. And obviously, that club is then questioned: What? Why did you mm. let player X go? Player X is now rising towards becoming a an international class talent. I mean, 
talent isn't linear, so you never know exactly how a player is going to develop in that sense, but clubs are being smart now in protecting their assets. I think that the the buyback clause is what's put off some clubs. Um, I know that there was talk that Manchester United were very interested, which is interesting given the, the fact that Luke Shaw was one of their better performers towards the end of last season before he lost time due to injury. Mm. I think that they were put off by the fact that there would be a buyback clause because they don't want to be seen as developing another club's asset and then having them taken away with no say of their own. I think that Spurs are perhaps in a position where they have to be more flexible with their outlook in these things because uh, we, we've all seen, I think, the the documentary at the moment on Amazon Prime, the, the All or Nothing documentary, and the, the way that Danny Rose's situation has been handled by Jose Mourinho. I think that Spurs are at a position now where, yes, they have Ben Davies, who's an excellent defensive left-back, but going forward, perhaps not so much. Regulon gives them that attack and outlet on the left-hand side and provides width that they don't have naturally, really, because yeah. their attackers all like to move centrally. I think that it's a very smart deal and he'll be a very good player. And I think that in time, he that buyback clause will be activated by Real Madrid and he'll go back. And, and that's perhaps best for all parties. I think the, the Gareth Bale deal is, um, it's been coming for a god, I don't know how long. There's been talk about his return to the Premier League for I don't know how long. I think that there are probably few clubs who would be as quick to take the deal at the moment as Spurs because obviously in terms of their fan base, the, the excitement of having Gareth Bale return, given what he was when Real Madrid bought him, I think that, that that's a huge benefit to the club from a, a commercial perspective. I think that he would still be uh, a top, perhaps not top tier is not quite the right word. I think he would be a very strong performer in the Premier League still, but I think we have to acknowledge that over the years he, he's not the same player he was as when he left Spurs. He, he won't be popping up all over the pitch, getting possession and shooting from range and doing all these different things. He's almost a player who has got so used to playing in a certain way that I think that he will be more static in terms of the, the attacking system of Spurs if he does go there. But it does throw into question the, the future of the likes of Dele Alley at the club. It very much does. I just want to pick up on something you mentioned. Talent is not linear. Mm-hmm. And I want to remind people that when Gareth Bale last played for Spurs... Harry Kane was seen as an overweight young striker who probably <laughs> yes, wouldn't yeah. make it at Premier League level. You know, so you just don't know what young players... I mean, look, if Arsenal had had real foresight, they would have protected themselves on Serge Gnabry. Yep. They would have taken up their buyback on Jeff Rene Adelaide and their buyback on Ishmael Benneker, three players who would start for Arsenal right now. Absolutely. I think the regular one is really interesting because... What it allows Spurs to do is it allows them to take Ryan Sessegnon and go and find a loan for him. Yep. I think the perfect loan for him would be Brighton and Hove Albion because Graham Potter is very good at developing young players. Graham Potter, and we will get to this later, has moved to a back three and that requires wing backs. He has a right wing back in Tariq Lamptey and I think Ryan Sessegnon would be a very exciting addition as the left wing back in that team. Now, you can also make a little bit of money with a loan fee on that. If they're paying $30 million for Regulon, and say in two years' time, Madrid give them back $40 million, well, then they'll have made $10 million in profit. And potentially, Ryan Sessegnon will then be ready to just slide right into the team as a left-back or left-wing-back. 
Because the other thing Regulon gives them is he gives Spurs the option of, if they want to, moving to a back three, because Ben Davies can tuck in as a left-side centre-back. Now, whether the Mourinho, who has played a back three, you know, here and there through his career, whether he'd move to that more frequently, I don't know. But it does give Spurs a potential, to, like, long-term situation at left-back, Regulon now and Cessnion down the line. I wonder if maybe United have been a little short-sighted in this because they could have done something similar with yeah. Brandon Williams, who I think has enormous potential. He absolutely does. I think the the only issue that I would have with Brandon Williams is the fact that he's right-footed. It, it it, it's a small matter. I mean, right-footed players can play on the left, left-footed players can play on the right. But for me, towards the end of last season, when... United were struggling because they couldn't rotate their squad because they didn't have that squad depth. I mean, Luke Shaw was in, injured. They really lost something in the attacking phase because Brandon Williams was so intent on coming back in on his right foot. On his right foot. Yeah, he, he was so... I mean, normally what you'll see with right foot, but with wrong-footed players playing in the, the wide area, I mean, it's normal for wingers. We talk about it all the time. A, a left-footed winger who plays on the right to cut in and argued Robin, if you like. Yeah. Same on the other side. That That's a a specific tactical role that a lot of clubs use these days. It becomes more difficult at fullback because of the angles at which you're receiving the ball. So Brandon Williams, when Manchester United were building up from the back, for example, when he's under pressure and he's receiving the ball, he doesn't open up his body fully to use that side of the pitch, which is the natural side for a left back. Instead, he's cutting off that angle a little bit by coming back in on his right. I still think that he has the, the capacity and definitely has the potential to become a player for Manchester United over the next 10 years. And I absolutely agree that I think that an opportunity for him to go out on loan to somewhere where there's perhaps less exposure, less pressure, it would definitely be helpful. Mm. And you're absolutely right that a club like Brighton, who recruit extremely well, are, are a good place at the moment for people to go on loan. I would also say that the likes of Crystal Palace would be the same yeah. at the moment because... The, the defensive structure that they use is so good for young defenders. There's a lot of cover, there's a lot of support, and it allows the player to develop that way. I think that Regulon is a player who will be have a real impact at Premier League level. I think everybody saw, you touched upon it yourself, that we were all impressed with Sevilla's run to, to win in the Europa League, and Regulon was a key part to that. But even before that, he's been impressive in Spain now for the last couple of years. Everyone's known that Real Madrid have this talent at left back. The only question that we had is is whether they would take him back and whether Ferland Mondi, the, the left back they signed from Leon, would continue. And it looks as if he will and Regulon will be allowed to leave, which I think is down to the fact that I read somewhere that he has maybe had a clash of personalities with Zidane. Um, so I think that if Spurs or if Man United were to make that deal, it definitely makes sense from a, a squad builder perspective. I totally agree. And it, it shows, I think, the short-sighted nature of Real Madrid that Regulon and Hakimi, who was yeah. sensational last year for Dortmund, are both being allowed to leave. Um, it, with regards to Bale, it, I think he might play up front. Yep. I don't think he can play him at wide anymore. He's still quick, but he doesn't have that like that explosion from a standing start to absolute hellfire doesn't exist anymore with Bale. But once he gets going, he's still quick. And I wonder if you use him more centrally. And maybe it's maybe it's a shift to a, something resembling a four four two where he plays slightly off 
um, Kane and then Son and Bergwijn or Son and, and Mora are the two wide players. But I think he'll play in central areas, and he's he, like you said, he's not a he's not a top level footballer anymore. He's not one of those elite players that he used like he used to be. But I still think his his shooting ability, that speed he does have once he gets moving, and the wealth of knowledge he'll have attained at Real Madrid, I think that can still make him a very impactful player and potentially a match winner. Yes, definitely. I think you're right. I think it makes sense to partner with Harry Kane. I think that that might unlock some of the, the issues that we've seen with Harry Kane over the last couple of seasons when his mobility has been questioned to a point. And obviously, mobility is a load forward is something that a player has to have. You have to have the ability to either drop towards the ball or spin and go behind. You have to have the willingness to collect and take possession and under pressure. And there's been elements of that that have kind of been missing from Harry Kane. He's still a an instinctive goal scorer and he's still a player who who Spurs really rely on and rightly so. But perhaps having Gareth Bale play, as you say, just off him, not in the same line, I don't think, but perhaps just behind with the ability to go up and join him on that, that attacking line, I think that will unlock more space for Harry Kane and that could only be a good thing for Spurs. Yeah, you'd be looking at Bale as kind of a nine and a half who plays just off. You don't want him too deep. You don't want him as a 10 because I don't think the legs will, will, will manage that anymore. And it is obviously the big issue with Bale while he's been in Madrid has been the injuries. Um, Kane, I agree. I think there's there's little bits lacking to his game. And I wonder if like he's had a couple of nasty injuries over the last few years. And I wonder if they've stolen a little bit of mobility from him. But if they can get Bale in close to him, get Son and Bergvine, who are rapid, tucked in nice and tight with uh, Doherty and Regulon bombing forward, and then just play a block of four, two centre-backs, two, two sitting midfielders, which is what Jose seems to like to do anyway. Yeah. All of a sudden, they can just get lots and lots of bodies in and around Harry Kane, which will lead to lots of chances. And also people to feed off his his creativity because it's overlooked. But Harry Kane is quite a creative player. He's he's a good passer. He reads the game really well. He knows where people are. He can move the ball around the corner really quick. He can switch the play. He can drop off. And he seems very comfortable. Like there's a reason Harry Kane wears 10 and not 9. Yeah. Harry Kane has always sort of looked at himself as, the guy off the main goal scorer. He just developed into being the main goal scorer. And I think maybe you can unlock a little bit more. Like if, if Bale is playing behind him, but all of a sudden Kane drops that bit deeper, well, Bergwijn, Bale and Son ahead and Kane able to find the passes. And maybe that's something that can unlock a new aspect and give Harry Kane the joy back because he hasn't looked a happy boy in the last six months. No, he certainly hasn't. I think they, you're right. I think that there has to be something that could be done to help Kane to really reach the levels that we know he can play at. I think that where we're almost overlooking a, a key aspect in both of these deals, however, and that's the the shadow of Jose Mourinho and and yes. whether he will whether he will see Gareth Bale as a player who can play alongside Harry Kane. That there's there's no guarantee in exactly what Mourinho will do. I mean, we've seen the way that he's he's treated players at Spurs, like in Dumbelli, who who's still a fantastic footballer. Deli Ali seems to be the player now who's who's getting the the treatment from from Mourinho, if you like. And 
I think that those questions will almost have to be answered by by Mourinho before Bale agrees to come to Spurs. Even. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine there's going to have to be a sit down, and the two of them are going to have to have a conversation, because for Bale. It's fair to say, like, despite the success, and he's had incredible success at Real, it hasn't worked out ideally for him in terms of playing time, in terms of his status in the game. Like, we look at where Ronaldo and Bale, Ronaldo was a level above when he went to Real, but he continued to go up and up and up and became this global megastar. Yep. And I think Bale going there, I think there was some assumption that he might not get to Ronaldo's level, but maybe he'd be just that level below. And his profile never really got any bigger. He never became a bigger star. He became, you know, maybe a bit more commercially appealing because he's with Real Madrid rather than Spurs. But inside football, you never got the opinion that he was elevated above where he'd been that last season at Spurs. So for him, he needs this to work. This is his legacy. Um, his best years came at Spurs. He wants, if he wants to go back there, he's going to be held. Like people have, people will remember how good he was, and people will expect him to be, or in around that same level, fair or not. Now he's not going to be able to have the all-round impact, but maybe if he played centrally, just off the striker, maybe he can have the same sort of goal-scoring impact, and. That will do. That's all he needs. If he can get goals, and Spurs need goal, need more goals. They need, especially when Kane is out, they need to have more reliable source of goals. If Gareth Bale can become that for them, that's going to be huge. But like you say, that's going to be dependent on one man, and that's the guy in the dugout. Because if he decides that, well, I'm, I'm sticking Bale on the right wing. <laughs> yeah. You know how how long into the season are we before Gareth Bale has a torn hamstring or a torn groin or yeah. whatever? Yeah, it's very difficult. I think that you have to be careful. I mean, we're aware of of Bale's injury history and the limitations that that puts on you. He has to be handled slightly differently because you're right. If he's used in the wrong situations, if he's used and he has to exert himself too much, then there's a a good chance he'll break down. And then if he does break down, then Spurs have invested a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of hype, if you like, into a player that will just sit in that treatment bench that we've all seen so much of in that that all-or-nothing documentary. Well, I've said before, I think anything shy of top four is a failure for Spurs this year with the squad they already have. If they add Gareth Bale, I mean, the, the Mourinho's job will be on the line if they don't get top four. But I like if their obligation to buy on Bale is based on he ha- you know getting top four, even if he gets hurt, there's a chance they do it anyway, and then they're stuck with him. So they need to manage him properly so he is a, f- a functional part of the team. He's actually giving you something. It's not like a case where you're going to get to next summer, you've made top four, and now you're regretting the fact that 15 or 20 million of your budget is having to go on a player that hasn't been an important part of your team. I, I think there's going to have to be probably a games restriction on him. You look at him and you say, right, based on what we've seen over the last, Five years at Real, 25 league appearances is about what we think works for you. And maybe 32 to 35 across all competitions. Because, you know, he's 
he's he played 20 games last season. Now, he played 42 the year before, but the three before that, 39, 27, and 31 across all competitions, he's had a lot of injuries. There's a lot of mileage. Uh, Lee, to be honest, I can't believe he was at Real Madrid for seven years. It, do, it does not seem like seven years. <laughs> no, it certainly doesn't. I think that more points to our age, though, to be honest, Dave. Because it does. I'm sure that we can both vividly remember that, that last season that he had at Spurs when he was the focal point of what was a, a really interesting Spurs side at the time and his, his ability to win games almost on his own was something that we haven't seen an awful lot at Premier League level. So it'll be fascinating if he does come back and to see exactly what kind of a player he is now. It will. It'll be very, very interesting to see what he is. It's... <laughs> It's amazing that he, he was at Real for longer than he was at Spurs. He was a year longer at Real than at Spurs. Um, the other bit of transfer news then today, and we'll just jump to quickly, is uh, Aston Villa have announced the signing of Emmy Martinez from Arsenal. Fee rumoured to be in the region of about £17 million. I wonder if there's an awful lot of... like. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think he's a, he's a good goalkeeper, but I think there's an awful lot of recency bias in that fee. Yeah, Because I think if if he moves last January, I, I don't even think he costs a third of that fee. I think you're absolutely right. I think that his performances towards the end of last season when Bernd Leno was, was unavailable were very good. Um, obviously, a, a modern-style goalkeeper, he claims the ball well, good shot-stopper and good with his feet, which is, of course, what, what all teams seem to be looking for these days. I can't help but feel that there are perhaps better options out there, but then... Aston Villa's recruitment in terms of, especially in terms of goalkeepers, has also has often sorry, been a little bit of a head-scratcher. I think that he he's at a stage of his career where he, quite rightly so, wants first-team football, and, and Arsenal have been quite clear that Bernd Leno will be their number one, at least for this season again. So I think it makes sense for all parties. I think Arsenal get a good fee for a, a goalkeeper who they've had on their books for a long time. They've, they put a lot of development into and He gets a chance to go off and show that he can be a number one. It's just, uh, as I say, it remains to be seen whether that the performances towards the end of last season are they the true reflection of the player that Aston Villa are getting. That's exactly the thing. Like, I don't know that we can sit here today and say, yes, he's better than Tom Heaton because Tom Heaton has performed at a very high level for a number of years. Now, he is 34. He's coming off a bad injury. But I don't know if he's an upgrade on Heaton as we sit here today. He's a long-term investment piece, though, because was he 26, 27? Yeah. So, you, you know... You, He's probably only starting to enter his prime years now as a goalkeeper. So you'd hope that Villa will have him for five, six years maybe. And and when you look at their recruitment this summer, Matty Cash is 22. Ollie Watkins is 23. They're in for Milot Rashika, who's 24. Um, Bertrand Traore, I think, is 25. So they're clearly buying players who they've got you know, a number of years in and who are not yet in their prime or just entering their prime. So there does seem to be a little bit more of a measured approach to Villa's recruitment this year, as opposed to last year, where it was just like, right, we need 53 players and we're just going to, let's bid for everybody and whoever we get. Whatever bids get accepted, they're the players we're buying. Yeah, and I think that that's down to the fact that they changed sporting director. Um it was a Spaniard, was his name Suso, was the sporting oh, yeah. director before. And now they've got Johan Lange, the, the ex-Copenhagen 
director of football, sporting director, in to do the recruitment. And he's a very, very intelligent man. Copenhagen are very well run. That they they sign young players at good ages, and they use interesting markets as well, which is I think something that we'll see more from Aston Villa. But there definitely appears to be more coherent thinking, more joined up thinking from Aston Villa this this season. And of course, that's coupled with the fact that Jack Grealish has signed a new contract. Yeah. So, so good news all round for for Aston Villa. Yeah, I think that's huge for them. I think that's it's a real sign that they're going in the right direction. I mean, they have mega rich owners. There's clearly a lot of ambition there. Um, they have a good manager. They play an attractive style of football, or they th- they, they try to. When it, it works, it works. When it doesn't, they can become a little bit stodgy. But if they can get these new attackers in, um, and I think Watkins was a good start, they they're going to be a bit of a, th- a threat next year. Just looking at Martinez, he's actually just turned 28. He's played 102 senior games in his career, but only, only 28, or sorry, only 38 of them came for Arsenal. Uh, he has 15 Premier League games under his belt. He's had loans at Oxford, Sheffield, you know, Sheffield Wednesday, Rotherham, Wolves, Getafe, Reading, and uh, you know, so he's been about. He's played in League Two. Yep. He's played in the Championship. He's been to Spain. He's 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 done things the hard way. He hasn't been handed anything. Um, and I do think he'll go to Villa with a big point to prove. He will go there wanting to prove to Arsenal that they've made another mistake here, that he's the guy that should have got the nod and not Leno. Um, Arsenal will hope they don't live to regret that one, I'd imagine. Right, let's jump in then to the weekend's games, Lee. So a couple of interesting um, things to discuss from the the weekend's games and, and the first thing you said you said you wanted to talk about was that new look Everton midfield that we saw face Spurs. So talk me through what you saw and what impressed you about Everton at the weekend. I think the the, the first thing that impressed me was it looked coherent. It, it looked like there was a plan. It looked like there was a reason behind what they were trying to do. And Despite Carlo Ancelotti being a fantastic coach, I don't think that was always the case last season. I think that oftentimes the the, the midfield unit especially looked disjointed. It looked like there wasn't balance. It looked like there weren't roles within that that complemented one another. But this time it looked different. And what was really interesting to me is if I had a look on Scout this morning just to refresh my memory at the report they have, and they have Everton down as a 4-3-3 with Richarlison playing on the left side of the attack and James Rodriguez on the right side of the attack. Neither of these players has has got any intention of playing as a winger. And I think that that's the first thing that clubs will have to be aware of when they play against them. Richarlison will will get up to support Calvert-Lewin whenever possible. And James Rodriguez just seemed to have the freedom to, to play whatever he wanted in the final third. I think, speaking about James in particular, I think a lot of people were were impressed with his ability to create openings, whether he had a couple of times he had a, the opportunity to shoot himself from outside the penalty area, none of those came off. But he was creative and creating openings for other players. And he still has, again, it's interesting to talk about James because the parallels to him and Bale are, are evident. They were both at Real Madrid and neither, they never made the impact that was expected at Real Madrid. James has spent time on loan. And now he's got an opportunity to to really take the steps that he needs to back towards where he should be in his career at this stage. 
I think a lot of people were impressed with his creativity, but he has that ability in the final third that top-tier players in that position have, and that the game seems to slow down around him. He has that ability just to pause on the ball, and he lets his, his teammates make their run and get into create separation from defenders before he then waits the ball into them. He doesn't rush anything, and, and that's something that I think will be really effective for forever in this season, especially with all the legs, if you like, around him. Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison are very mobile. Dukure, we saw his his physical capacity to get up in support and back and defend throughout. And then you have the wing-backs as well, who move high for Spurs to provide the width. Though. So when they get hammers on the ball in the final third, there are going to be options for him. But then when you, you look at the rest of the midfield, the, the midfield three, if you like, Andre Gomez, we, we kind of know what to expect now. Allen playing as the sixth gave Everton what they've lacked for the last two years, I think. They gave him, they gave he gave them a player that controls the game, but more than that, he controls his teammates. You saw him, his language isn't there yet, there's no doubt about that, but he was very, very vociferous in telling players where they should be. He moved his fullbacks up, he moved a set of defenders up, he pulled his midfielders back if he needed to. And then he was always in position just to break up attacks and then to play the next right pass. And I think that's something that's really important, especially on a side that, that's going to look to attack like I think this Everton team will. Yeah, I, I like that you've highlighted a lamb there. I've, I've always looked at great holding midfielders. And how I know they're great is when I see their, cent- their centre-backs taking their position off that player. Yeah. When they have that just that complete trust that that guy is in the right position, so I can take my position off him. If you watch Barcelona play over the last decade, their centre backs take their position off Busquets. So if Busquets steps up, they step up. If he steps back, they drop back. If he goes left, they go left. I thought Alan, as just from a pure dictation point of view, was incredible in that game. Even without touching the ball, I thought he was influencing everything about what Everton were doing in terms of shape. Rodriguez, uh, James Rodriguez, I, I just thought had an excellent game. I thought he was so much fun to watch. And it reminded me, that front three of Everton reminded me of Liverpool a few years ago when Coutinho played on yeah. the left yeah, and he would drop deeper, almost become like a, a, a free-roll midfielder. The midfield would sort of shift to an, to a, an asymmetric diamond. And he would cut in, pick the ball up. And as you say, always have time. Always have time on the ball. But then always have the bravery to hold on to the ball when he was getting pressed until the right passing option opened itself up. There was, there's, there's no hesitancy in his game of, oh God, I've got to get rid of the ball here. As you, as you do see with a lot of players, it was, I know I'm good enough to hold on to this ball until he makes that run. And when he makes that run, then I'll find him. I'm not going to find him early. I'm not going to find him late. I'm going to deliver this ball at exactly the right moment. And Richarlison, like you say, he doesn't. he's not going to play as a winger. He's going to play as an inside forward, which is exactly what Sadio Mane did when he played on the right of that front three. And then Calvert-Lewin, despite getting the goal, he's not going to be the main goal scorer in that team. I think Richarlison will be. I think Calvert-Lewin's role is going to be linking play, holding the ball up, making the runs, operate, uh, occupying the centre-backs, doing all the little bits of dirty work 
that just make everything fit together. Yeah, definitely. I think that what's really interesting about Carver Lewin is that he's almost a player that Andy Carroll should have been. Yes. If, if Andy Carroll's attitude was where it should have been in terms of his professionalism, if he didn't have the injuries that he had, he's the same prototype, the same physical specimen that Carroll is. He's got that. I mean, we saw the dominance in the air. That that header was one of the best headers you'll see all, all season. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Centre-backs didn't even jump. No, I know. They didn't the, even bother jumping. The, the delivery from Dino was great, but that the timing and the power that he got because he didn't just guide it; he powered that ball in the top corner. The goalkeeper never moved, and that, that's how you know that it was a, a good strike. I think that he'll provide a reference point. You're right; he'll he'll occupy two centre backs because neither centre back will want to be left one on one with him because of his ability to muscle them off the ball, if you like. And he's quick as well. Exactly. So if the ball goes over the top, whatever, he he can still chase it, and he presses and he works really, really hard. I think as a a striker, he's the kind of player that that I can see. I'm not saying that he he will be the player that Liverpool look to when they move on from Roberto Firmino, but he's the kind of player, the type of player that I think that they'll look to next when Firmino does move on because of the the benefits he gives to those wide attackers and you're absolutely right, James will play the Coutinho role, he'll drop back at the midfield, he'll collect the ball and he'll, he'll make play happen but that balance of the midfield with Alan being that, that controller Dukure, who had an excellent game, I think mm. that he's back in a position that I think suits him more, I think towards the end at Watford, he was almost played off the striker as a 10 I don't think that suits him as well as it does from a deeper role where he's able to make runs from those deep positions, but his momentum and his ability to find gaps in defensive line really caused chaos when he moves forward. And he also had the ability to get back. We saw Allen again pulling him back a few times to make sure Dukure was supporting and make sure that it almost became a double pivot at times with Allen and Dukure. And I think that he'll be he'll learn a lot from Alan over the course of the season, which could only be a good thing going forward for Everton. I always watch Decoure, I, I, and I do have doubts over Decoure's consistency. There's no doubting that when he's on, he's a very effective player. Yeah. I think this, this three-man midfield definitely suits him better than any of the shapes they really used him in at Watford. When they used him as a 10, I thought he was just he became too easy to pick up. And the game bypassed him quite a bit. When he played in a whole, like in a sitting two in the four two three one, I felt he drifted through games and had lapses in concentration. But in this three, especially with someone like Alan stood next to him, always in his ear, I think that's maybe the ideal role role for him. Now they do have Gabamon to come back into the team as well, so maybe we'll see a bit more shifting around. The one thing they will have with this group of players is they'll have tactical options in terms of their shape. But I think the basic premise of how they want to play will remain the same. Yeah, I think so. I think that, I mean, Ancelotti is an intelligent coach. He's he's someone who's who he's been knocked before as not being a tactical coach. He's been he's been called a man manager, if you like. And mm. there are coaches who are that type, but you also can't be a coach who's coached for as long at the top level as Carlo Ancelotti without knowing how to set up your team and how to get the best out of your team from a tactical perspective. I I really liked Gabanin at Mainz in Germany before he moved to Everton, obviously really unfortunate with injuries since he did. and He is a player who, who I think 
gives you the kind of options that they used to have with Idrissa Guy when, when he was that, that holding player who could break lines and break up opposition attacks at the same time. I think that Everton are going to be really interesting to watch. You're right, the, the tactical shape is set. We, we've talked about the movements the front line will make. We know the roles of the midfield, but I think what they have now is almost the quality of player that it doesn't always matter if the opposition are able to to discern this tactical plan early because you get the ball to James Rodriguez, people know the ball's going to him, but it doesn't mean they can stop him when he takes possession. As you say, he'll hold the ball and he'll be press resistant. He'll find the right angled pass. And they also have players in Luca Digne and Seamus Coleman who provide width. Mm. They're not fullbacks who'll get round the outside. They, they won't touch the touchline very often, but in the final third, they'll be positioned wide and they'll give Everton those options to change the angle of attack. I think that Everton have the the opportunity, and I'll I'll be the first to hold my hands up, but I, I've talked often before the season started about the teams that I was looking forward to, to watching. Everton did figure on that list, but now I'll definitely be keeping an eye on their games. There's a little bit of, of Liverpool about them in the midfield as well, and in defence, with there's going to be a lot of emphasis on their fullbacks to to add to their creativity this year, um, because they because they don't have any natural width in the front three. Now, like you say, their fullbacks won't hug the touchline, but they will get forward continually. Dina is his delivery is second to none. He is yeah. just a fantastic player. Coleman's probably a little bit past his best, and. It's funny, they had Jibrel Sidibe there last year and they made a decision not to keep him because he didn't fit with the 4-4-2 that Carlo played, but I really think he'd fit nicely in this system. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, and then you look at that midfield and you've got Dukure as that box-to-box player. That's the Jordan Henderson role. Alan does very similar things to Fabinho as a six. And then Andre Gomes is, is sort of playing a similar enough role to Ginny in that he is the link. He's the one that just fills the gaps, basically. And his I thought he I thought he had quite a good game. And he's not a player I'm overly keen on. I think he can be a little bit ponderous. But I thought he had quite a good game here. Yeah, he takes up smart positions. I think again, you're right to, to draw the parallels to Ginny Vinaldum. I think that the two players are very similar. I think that Andrew Gomes is, is a player who he's more of a, a link player than he is anything else, similar to Vinaldum. And sometimes these players can be overlooked by fans and even just casual observers who'll maybe watch a live game every now and again on Sky or catch match of the day. And those players never seem to be doing anything. But if you take that player out of the team, then all of a sudden you're missing something. You're You're missing that link, that that extra option to reset the play if your team's under pressure because Vinaldum will always be there if Liverpool are under pressure in the final third. Vinaldum's always there to receive the ball. It doesn't matter where he receives it. He'll always take it. He'll always accept possession and then move the ball. And Gomes is similar to that. I think that, Alan, absolutely, you could see the, the parallels, not from a physical perspective, but definitely parallels in terms of phys- playing style with Fabinho. And what's really interesting about Alan is that he's been this player for years now at Napoli. When they had Maurizio Sarri, that great Napoli side, that midfield was Alan. It was Marek Hamzik playing the more attacking role, and Jorginho was the dictator, the, the passer toward to the side of him. And now you see Alan coming into the Premier League and his, his ability to 
to dictate what his team do, I think, will be almost overlooked this season, but will be key for Everton. I think from a psychological point of view as well, this is just a massive win for Everton because they had been so poor away from home. It was nearly seven years since their last win away to one of the what's now the big six. Uh, they beat Manchester United 1-0 at Old Trafford when Moyes was the manager of United. And if you go back into the Moyes era, what was then the big four, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool and United, they didn't win away once to those four teams. So you've looked at basically 18 years of the, you know, the biggest away games and they'd won once in 18 years. First big game of this season, they win away to a, a top six or big six team. I just think from a psychological point of view, that is going to be big for them because they'll now go to Old Trafford and the Emirates and Anfield and think, we can do this. We've done it. We've beaten Spurs. Spurs are really good. We can go to Manchester United. We can go to Arsenal. We don't have to worry about, you know, will we always lose here? We can go here now fresh, new, new ambition, new mentality, new philosophy. We've we've got as good a manager. Like, And the thing for, for, for Everton players is now they can look into their dugout and think, no matter who's in the opposite dugout, our guy is as good, if not better. And that hasn't been the case for them over the last, well, maybe ever. No, it certainly hasn't. And you're right, the psychological aspect is a really important part of the game. And when we talk about tactics, often we, we almost lose that side of it. We lose the fact that these players are, are people who have emotions and who suffer from crisis of confidence from time to time, and, and it will be a huge boost to their confidence. But at the same time, flipping that the other way, this is a blow for Spurs. Mm. To have a team, you're right, that they're used to Everton coming to, to Whitehallane or whatever the stadium is now. Is it the Tottenham Stadium? Not sure. But, but they're used to play teams like Everton coming to their, their home stadium and then struggling. But now they've played this Everton and they, they found a team who were resilient, who were strong defensively, had a real structure that Spurs struggled to break down and who had that cutting edge in attack as well. I think that Spurs will have had a knock on this because it was a strong Spurs side. A lot of people were looking forward to seeing Hoiberg. I think that Hoiberg was almost misused. I, I don't think he had a, a coherent role within the Spurs structure. He never did seem to know exactly what was expected of him. And I think that Spurs will have, have been knocked by this and Everton will definitely take the confidence for going forward. I thought the Spurs midfield of Hoysburg and, and Harry Winks had far too much redundancy in it. You basically have two guys in who are going to perform the same role. And Winks has been there so long that when their defenders are looking to progress play, they just automatically, I felt, were giving it to Winks because he's the guy they were used to giving it to. And Heusberg's then stood to the side going, well, this is kind of what I was brought here to do. Yeah. Do you yeah. know, I was brought here to be the conduit for everything to come through me. Um, I felt, it was funny, when Endon Ballet came on, you could just immediately see the gulf in quality between him and most other players on the pitch. He, he had two passes in about his first six minutes on the pitch that were probably the best two passes anybody played in the entire game. 
Yeah, it's not even close. I think that you and I are of the same opinion of, of Tonga in Dumbelli that mm. he is he has the potential still to become a midfielder who who can dominate games for his team. I I just don't think well, it could be the Spurs team that he does that for, but it certainly will not be under Jose Mourinho. Mourinho has, has made no secret of the fact that he doesn't like in Dumbelli. And it's just crazy because the, the quality that he has when he comes on the pitch, it, yes, his passing is absolutely fantastic. You're right, those two passes were, were head and shoulders above what we'd seen from Spurs before that. But it's his ability to take possession as well and drive and break yeah. lines that way, similar to Naby Keita gives to Liverpool when he's on form and fit. It's, it's that same balance that he gives because he can take the ball and if the if the opposition stand off him he'll pass around them. If the opposition get too close, he's press resistance, you'll take possession, you'll spin them and you'll go into space. And and that's something in central areas from central midfielders. You talked about Jeff Rennie Adelaide earlier on, referencing Arsenal and it's something that he gives teams as well because he's got that ability in central areas to drive past people. And as soon as you do that in the centre of the park, you open up space across the final third, and and that can really be the difference for your team. I saw Ted from Statsbomb uh, on Twitter last night. He was somebody was that was you know he was making a joke about the Arsenal's chase of of uh, Hussein Hour from Leon, and you know what what alternatives there might be to him. And he was saying, well, you know, Ishmael Benneker would would have been a really <laughs> nice fit. And I, I said to him, like, I said, it's not, I'm not being funny here, but the two perfect midfielders for Arteta, if he really wants to play the 4-3-3 that he said he wants to play, the two perfect midfielders to bring into that Arsenal team would be Jeff Rene Adelaide and Benneker. Yeah. They would just fit like a glove into, into how he wants to play. And unfortunately for Arsenal, they sold them both for seven million and then failed to take up their buyback options on, on both players. Um yeah, I think Spurs are going to need to loan Endembele. I think the best bet, loan him now for a year. No option to buy, no obligation, none of that. Loan him somewhere where he's going to play 35 games. And then next summer, if Mourinho's still there, maybe you consider selling him. If bring him back, to any manager who comes in, he's going to be a very, very attractive player to use because he is sensationally talented. Uh, I want to move on then to Monday night's game. Uh, we saw the battle of the back threes, uh, Sheffield United against Wolves, but then we had Brighton against Chelsea. And I thought, and I think you agree on this, from a tactical point of view, both teams showed very interesting things, good and bad. Let's start with Brighton. We saw the introduction of a back three for Brighton. Ben White comes in alongside Lewis Dunk, and Webster switches to the left-hand side. Now, he's not ideal there because he's not naturally left-footed, but he is decent with his left foot and has played left-back in the past. I thought they showed signs, especially with Tariq Lamptey as just an absolute whirling dervish up and down the right wing. I thought Brighton had a lot to take heart from in this game. Despite the the loss, I thought they deserved a draw. But I think Brighton can be really confident coming out of that game. They absolutely can. I think that the issues, I mean, there was a slightly different tactical shape here, right? But I think that the, the issues that Brighton face are the same that they faced last year. They're, they're really tidy in possession. They're really good on the ball. They progress the ball well to the final third. And then the final third, they lose that incisiveness. 
Neil Mopai still has to to prove himself, I think, at this level as somebody who can score you 15 goals a season. Um, I think that's the, the next step, if you like, they need to take in their evolution. But the, the back three certainly showed a lot of promise for them. It, the main thing, of course, is that it released Tariq Lamptey. I think that Chelsea fans watching that game will it will, will have been again questioning. Yes, Reese James scored a fantastic goal. I think you'll be able to count the amount of those that he scores in his career on on half of one hand. Um, he had the assist as well from the corner, but you saw Tariq Lamptey in possession. Chelsea were terrified whenever yeah. he got the ball, and I think it was the build up to to the Brighton goal. I think there was a one-two on the outside, and Tariq Lamptey then went to quickly burst behind the defensive line, and the Chelsea defenders were were paralysed and frightened by that movement, and it just kind of it allowed Brighton to create space further forward just from that piece of movement off the ball that Lamptey had. I think that the back three is interesting. There's a lot of options there. Obviously, it means that the, the tallest left back in the world, Dan Byrne, <laughs> might <laughs> might not get as much minutes this season. Uh, I really like Adam Webster. I think that mm. Adam Webster is it was a really smart piece of business from Brighton, which is something we tend to say quite a lot about Brighton. Really smart piece of business to pick him up from Bristol City when they did. And he and, and obviously Ben White give you an awful lot of options with the ball because they're both comfortable stepping into midfield and possession. I think Ben White almost, I'm not sure, I was actually doing a live commentary of this game and, and I made the comment during the match that it almost felt like a, a deliberate tactical ploy that whenever White got the ball, he looked for a more direct pass. He was almost looking to bypass the midfield to access space behind the Chelsea defensive line for Mopai. Um But he has the ability to knit play in that central area as well. I think that you you were right earlier on, you talked about Ryan Sessegnon perhaps being an option to play left wing back. I think that's what they were missing. They were missing the balance because yeah. Lamp, Chelsea were terrified whenever the ball was on the bright and right because Lamptey was there. And, and gradually that meant that they were closing space down on that side of the pitch more. That gives you the option then to quickly switch play and have an isolation opportunity on the other side with the opposite wing back. I think that's something that, that they'll look to do. But at the same time, I think that Basuma, uh, shield in the back three, with his, his performance in the middle, was really, really promising. He's another player I like. So, yeah, a lot of positives for Brighton. They're, they're still missing that profile and attack. He almost, I mean, Trossard and Mopai, then Mopai and Connolly. They're players who, who offer you almost the same things, which is the problem, yes. I think. I think they almost need that Calvert Lewin that we talked about with Everton. They, they need that option of the a. Glenn Murray. Yeah, no, exactly, Glenn Murray. That option of a target, a reference mm. point in the attack. And then I think Maupai becomes more alive around that because he has the ability to not have to not have to lead the line all the time, but to come from deeper positions and, and then he might get more success. Well, I look at their team as it lined out and I really like the back three. I like them individually and I think collectively they're they're gonna become very, very strong. I, I love Tariq Lamptey. I love that signing when they made it. They got him at a bargain price. And yeah. it is going to be a running debate now for the next 10 years, <laughs> Lamptey or James. And, it, yeah. you know, I think they're both going to be great. I think England are ridiculously spoiled for choice at right back with the likes of Trent, Max Ahrens, Matty Cash, Jaden Bogle. Uh, these two boys, obviously, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Kyle Walker-Peters. You know, it's it's an incredible generation of right backs that we are now witnessing. Um, 
across the middle, uh, Basuma I really like, and I think if he stays fit, he's going to be huge for them. Alzati I think is is good, but maybe not quite starter quality if you've got you know for every week i think he's a fine situational player but they do have davy proper to come back in i'd imagine that's you know davy proper will slot in for him lalana i thought started brightly started to fade and then got injured and that's just adam lalana in a nutshell the <laughs> he just summed are... up his liverpool career there in yeah, one you know what i mean is the injuries have just killed him but they do have alexis McAllister, who i'm very high it on is. i think will come in Left wing back, they definitely need an upgrade. Sully March is a good player, and he, he gives us all, but he doesn't offer a real threat. Ryan Sassignon on a loan could be perfect. And like you say, up front, it's that reference point. It's someone to occupy defenders, because if you can get that proper number nine, and then you get Trossard or Mope, or maybe both if you play 3-4-3 three, three and you leave out one of the midfielders, or you play the 3-5-2 with Alexis McAllister coming, if they got someone like, like Veghorst, yeah, from Wolfsburg, and they have the money because Brighton, Brighton have spent two hundred million across the, the previous three summers. They they they're not shy of spending, and they were in for Darwin Nunez, um, so they do have money available to them. But if they could go and get someone like him, who's just that big presence, but mobile, good with his feet, holds the ball up, links to play, can do all the things Graham Potter wants him to do. He's not just a big lump, like you said, the Calvert Lewin profile. Someone like him, I think. I think Ryan Sessegnon alone and him, and I genuinely think Brighton would have a real shot at a top half finish. Not not ninth or above, but I think tenth is open. I think there's a group of about seven teams that could get tenth, and I really think Brighton could be in that mix if they could make the right signings. I've seen a lot of disrespect for them actually. A lot of quote unquote mainstream journalists predicting them to go down, and I, I don't know where that comes from. I think a lot of them were a lot of the people that we're talking about were perhaps a bit put off when they moved on from Chris Hutton the way they did. Um, obviously, Hutton had kept them up, and then they they moved to to Graham Potter, who who is such an interesting coach. His his journey and his story is really really fascinating, and I think a lot of traditional, if you like, football media types aren't perhaps as as enamoured with that different footballing journey and different way of accessing the job that he's got. I think that Brighton, I mean, you talked about their, their finances. Uh, people may not know, but they're, they're run in very much the same way that Brentford are run. And Brentford get an awful lot of hype about their, their recruitment policy, and rightly so. But Brighton use data in the same way. Tony Bloom has a, a betting company which rivals Matthew Benham's betting company, and the, the two of them are known to be great rivals for one another. So they're well aware of how to use data, and they've also gone out and invested in other clubs. They, they've say they've bought a, a Belgian second tier club, Union Saint Gilles, which has been run the same way. They're, they're they're making recruitment choices through data. Brighton are sending players on loan to smart clubs in Europe and smart clubs in Britain, and they're getting them first team football. In terms of their medium to long term planning, I think everything for Brighton is in place. In the short term, they're just missing that that one or two players. I think that could make a huge difference. And you're right; they, they need a a workhorse type would be perfect. I think a lot of people have also overlooked having Ben White back because people forget, even though they owned him, he wasn't there last year. Yep. And if if Brighton had signed him for forty million, I think everybody would would have been like, "That's incredible! Like, what a great addition! It's amazing for Brighton." 
if, if Leeds had signed him or anyone else had gotten him, people would have lost their minds about how, what a huge prospect this guy is. Yeah. But Brighton have just kept him, and it's an, it's an enormous addition for them. On the other side of the ball in this game, then, we had Chelsea. And I think it would be fair to say they were underwhelming, but not necessarily unexpectedly underwhelming, given the amount of hype there's been around them. Um, their shape was a little bit strange. Certain players didn't seem to have a defined role. I thought Ruben Loftus-Cheek looked absolutely lost. I felt so sad for him because I, I really like Ruben Loftus-Cheek and I really want to see him go where go somewhere in Crystal Palace and I really want to see him do well, but he just looked lost in this shape. He absolutely did. I think that it was a real chance for him to an extent to come in and, and show Chelsea fans and players that they've been missing throughout all his injuries. I think that when he's fit, his we talk about the we talked about the ability of players like Hamez to play in the final third and, and the fact that they, they slow things down. Ruben Loftus cheek is almost the opposite of that, but there's no no harm in being the opposite of that. He gets the ball and he makes things happen through his sheer presence, through his physicality, but then you can't ignore the fact that he's so technically good with the ball at his feet. He he has the ability to receive in tight spaces, he's got a soft touch, he manipulates the ball past people. But we saw none of that Monday night. I think that when you talked about players not having a clearly defined role, that that's almost encapsulating Kai Havertz, which is obviously the big narrative that a lot of people on social media have taken away from the game was the performance of Kai Havertz. And it didn't take long for somebody to clip that pass that he played in his own half when he was trying to switch the play and mm. he, he missed the player by 20 yards. It's no time for Chelsea to panic over Kai Havertz. I think that the the issue is that you had a, a player coming into a new club. You have a club who's obviously looking to do something different tactically under Frank Lampard. And all of these things kind of came together to provide this underwhelming performance from Chelsea. They, they, they needed that Rhys James 30-yarder at the top corner to create separation after Brighton equalised. Then Kurt Zuma scores a goal that, that deflects in and nobody in the Brighton team could do anything about. And Lewis Dunk missed a sitter. Exactly, Lewis Dunk missed an absolute sitter, which you don't expect from him. He, he He's a player who's quite proficient in those circumstances oh. normally. But I think it was almost a move from Chelsea to what they're going to become. So it was a 4-2-3-1 and Jorginho and Kante almost played a double pivot, which doesn't quite suit either of them. And you saw circumstances where Kante would push on which is fine. And then he would drop back in again to that double pivot. But it was the next layer, the midfield, that has all the questions about it. Out of possession, they were they were pressing in a very Red Bull style. It was a 4-2-2-2 almost cause, yeah. because um, the, the two players at the front, Werner, was, was pressing forward. And then the two wide players, Havertz and Mason Mount, were, they're, not, they're not wingers. And I think they're not supposed to be for Chelsea this season. I think that Frank Lampard wants that narrow three in the middle. When Hakim Ziyech is available, I think he'll be that player on the right where Havertz was. I think Havertz then becomes the player in the 10 role. And because he has the ability to join the front line and to get up past Werner, I think then you start to see that unlocked a little bit. So that there's still promise from Chelsea. I think it was just a, a slow start and maybe 
maybe the instructions weren't at the level they could have been to help the players play in the system. Yeah, I agree. I think they lacked just a natural bit of pace and width as well. Like James was was providing it on the right, but on the left-hand side, I thought everything just looked really bunched over. And, and while Marcus Alonso is more than willing to get forward, he's quite ponderous in, in his movements. Yes. I wonder if, if the, the, the role that we saw Mason Mount play is where Christian Pulisic comes back into this team. And that will give them a bit more dynamism, a li- little bit more flexibility as well. And I, look, the, the Chelsea, their attacking options this year, if you consider Zajic, Havertz and Pulisic behind Werner, and then they'll have Hudson-Odoi, Loftus-Cheek, Mount and Tammy Abraham. Like, that's, that is absolutely stacked. Like, there's very few teams can match that. It's going to be about finding the balance for Frank. It's going to be about Timo Werner learning a slightly new role. Exactly. It's about Kai Havertz learning a slightly new role, about Zajic learning a new system, about Pulisic learning a new system. Like, it's going to take time. And as I've said before, I don't think we've seen anything yet from Frank to suggest he is good enough to manage Chelsea. But alternatively, we haven't seen anything to suggest he isn't good enough. My big concerns are behind that. The midfield too, I didn't think that pairing worked. And I don't think the Kovacic-Kante pairing works all that well either. Because both of them want to be the one to step forward and go and win the ball high and and push the pace. Kovacic-Jorginho probably works a little bit better than this pairing. But then you leave Kante out and that's not going to happen. Um, I thought that the centre-back, I thought there was promising signs at centre-back. I thought Andreas Christensen looked like he had a little bit more control of what everybody was doing, and he was talking to people and pulling them into position a bit more. But unfortunately, he's probably the one that loses out when Thiago Silva comes in, and the issue, I think, with Silva is going to be, especially in that system, he will get murdered for pace because James is going to push forward. Neither of the midfielders want to sit and be the defensive-minded one. Jorginho will sit and dictate the play, but he's not particularly good defensively. And I just wonder if Thiago Silva is going to get left out in an island defending 40 yards of space. That could be something that teams have an awful lot of fun picking at. Yeah, hugely. So I think that we've seen these problems with Thiago Silva in his career before and in a team where he's allowed to become isolated. I mean, we there's a lot of talk before last season about Liverpool having the same issues. Because obviously Trent Alexander-Arnold was seen as such an attacking threat that teams for a little while would look to hit that space whenever they got possession and transition. They'd look to play the ball in that space and and pull whoever was the right-sided centre-back out and that would create openings. That's the exact thing that they can do to this Chelsea side. But whereas Liverpool were able to counter that slightly through the position and the ability of like, of Fabinho and his mobility to pull out if he needs to. And then Trent wasn't pushing quite so far forward because he was more inverted in central areas and he was able to get back. And, and Jurgen Klopp found a solution for it. I think the question, and you're absolutely right to question Frank Lampard, I think. I don't think that, that we've seen enough from him yet to suggest that he is a coach who's capable of getting the best out of these players. I think that it'll be interesting to see from a tactical perspective if Lampard can find a solution. I mean, the solution might be that you tell N'Golo Kante that he can't go as far forward as he wants to in possession, but but who wants to limit N'Golo Kante when, when he has the capacity to, to play the way he does? Who wants to tell the, whoever the, the right-sided 
attacking midfielder is that he has to sacrifice himself a little bit. Hakim Ziyech, I don't think he'll make those recovery runs. So no. I, th- I think Thiago Silva will absolutely be isolated at times. And his lack of pace, he, he was never the quickest defender at Milan in, in his pomp, but he was also always a very active and good defender in tight spaces. Mm. I think that he's only lost pace and become maybe a little bit more complacent during his time with PSG, where, where PSG were so possession-orientated and so heavy, they had so much of the ball against the opposition that even in transition, the opposition struggled to get numbers up and, and he was able to defend a little bit more comfortably. Teams will absolutely attack that side of this Chelsea defence. And you have to remember as well, PSG also played Thilo Carrere, a centre-back with really good recovery pace yeah. to his right. Presnel Kembembe, a centre-back with really good recovery pace to his left. And Marquinhos, who's maybe one of the three or four best centre-backs in the world, yes, sat absolutely. in front of him as a holding midfielder. So he never really had big spaces. And you're right, he is brilliant in tight spaces. Still to this day, 1v1 when he's close to that attacker, He's really good. But if that attacker can knock the ball but past him and just run. And in the Premier League, left-sided options include Sadio Mane, uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Marcus Rashford, Youngman Son, Richarlison. Like, these lads are going to just lick their lips at the sight of that poor man, 36 years of age, standing out with nobody close to him. If the ball ends up at their feet, they will just run and run and run. And the poor guy could be retired and back home in Brazil by Christmas if that happens. <laughs> it will be. Um, we'll, leave it, we'll leave it there on those games, Lee. Anything coming up this weekend that catches your eye as a potential, uh, a potentially interesting tactical battle? I think that we're all looking forward to, to Chelsea-Liverpool, which is mm. perhaps the most interesting one. Um, a lot of people overreacting to the Liverpool-Leeds game and, and so far as that Liverpool have defensive problems. They don't. No, not yet. I think that there are very few teams who will commit as many players into the opposition box as Marcelo Bielsa's leads to. I, I challenge any team who are good defensively but also want to attack to defend effectively against those kind of movements that Leeds were making. I think this is not the time to worry about Liverpool's defence. I think what we'll see is a return to what we saw last season and they'll they'll control that game against Chelsea and, and it really will be interesting to see whether Frank Lampard sticks with this 4-2-3-1 and, and goes against Liverpool with that because there are real options and, and attacking options then for Liverpool. We're all looking forward to seeing Leeds again, I think. I think we're all looking forward to seeing if, if this is what we can expect. I can tell people who haven't watched a lot of Leeds, obviously, I'm currently researching a book on them. I've watched an awful lot of them over the last two years. This is what you'll get from Leeds. They, they'll attack, they'll defend man-to-man. I loved the, the point in the Liverpool-Leeds game where Firmino dropped deep and Robin Koch just went with him. Yeah. And at one point, he, Firmino was in his own half and you saw him checking his shoulder. Robin Koch was still there. And the look in Firmino's face was a picture. And normally teams would, normally Liverpool would exploit that ruthlessly. And you'd have Mane and Salah making those diagonal movements in the space that Koch had left. But because Leeds were man-to-man marking so aggressively, they struggled to get separation because the right back and the left back just followed them. And it was so interesting to see from a tactical perspective. So I think we're all looking forward to seeing what they do next. The only thing that would have made that moment better is if Cock had just waved at him like, yes, <laughs> I'm still here. I've followed you this far and I'll follow you no matter where you go. Yep. Um, yeah, it was, it, it was a very interesting game. 
And I do. I think Leeds are just going to be so much fun to watch all season. We'll leave that there for today then. Uh, Lee, thanks so much for t- taking the time to come on with me today. Uh, I'll speak to you next Wednesday. I do advise everybody to check out Lee's books, King Klopp, Rebuilding the Liverpool Dynasty and Mastering Premier League. Lee's book on Pep Guardiola's incredible Manchester City team, both available from Pitch Publishing on Amazon and at all good bookstores. That'll do us today. Uh, Two-footed podcast on Wednesday, the 16th of September. Thank you to EPLindex.com for the platform. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, LibertyShield.com. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always, for producing. And thank you to Lee, because his analysis is second to none. I'll see you tomorrow. Tip your waitresses. Podcast Network.